Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 13th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I want to um, apologize for being late to posting podcasts to talk to. There are some people, that there are probably quite a few people from the emails I get that, that um, have Apple iPads or iPods and only get my programs through the Apple Store, and, and that's only available through TalkShoe. I won't put Christagenia on the Apple Store, the Christagenia feed, because the Apple Store is far too politically correct, and, and I'd rather not have the hassles that they, wow, they have disclaimers that you can't say anything bad about freaking faggots, sodomites. You can't say anything bad about niggers or anything else like that. So that's no fun for me. That's not where, that that's not my playground. I get these challenges from Jewish trolls all the time who pose as intellectuals on YouTube and in other venues such as Twitter and things like that. And they think they can possibly make arguments valid to deconstruct my methods and reasoning. Recently, I had a particular so-called white nationalist whom I redressed. He has a three-part name. He's um, Italian. He's from the Northeast. I don't want to say his name. He's a clown. I redressed him on Twitter because he claimed to be a deist, and I informed him that deism was actually Jewish. So a certain YouTube troll challenged me to define deism. And I was also challenged on a definition of the Greek word theos, the Greek word for God. Silly Jews, these things are easy to answer. And I will. I'll address them here, only for the sake of the people who know me in my ministry and see these posts on Twitter and YouTube, that they don't get misled thinking that maybe I can't answer these things because I won't deal with these damned trolls. I won't give them the time of day. To a Christian, the Old Testament God, Yahweh, is God and there are no others. So I have no problem whatsoever reading the Greek word theos in reference to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and writing Yahweh instead of writing God. That is no different than what the Jews and the Septuagint and the King James translators have done throughout time with the Greek word kurios when they made their Greek and English versions of the Old Testament and substituted the tetragrammaton with the word kurios. Since they took the license to turn the Tetragrammaton into a title where they saw fit, then I have the license to turn their titles into the Tetragrammaton where I see fit, and I choose to represent the Tetragrammaton with the word Yahweh. Now, only a Jew would despise me for that, but I don't care. I did it. And it's staying. It's staying. 
It'll be in the next version of the Christogenia New Testament. And if there's ever another version necessary, it'll be the same in that one. As for deism, neither am I going to allow the Jews to define that word for me. You can't define deism for me. If you're a Jew, your God's the devil. Your God's yourself, and you're a devil. I can define the word deism for myself. Deism is the vain notion that a vague and ill-defined God can exist outside of the God of Scripture. Deism is the vain notion that one's God is somehow distinct from the revealed Word of God in Scriptures. Having such a concept of a God who's not the God of Scriptures, one can imagine the character of one's own deity. Deists make their own God in their heads and claim to be deists. That's what they do. And all of the laws of that deity or the things which one should do to please that deity can also be imagined. With deism, one can be one's own God. Therefore, deism is really just a mere wrapper for Jewish relativism. And all Christians must reject it. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is Yahweh the God of the creation. Christians must not accept deists. Christ said, no one gets to the Father except through me. Reading the description of the Sadducees in Josephus, especially in book two of his Wars of the Judeans, comparing his description of the doctrines of the Sadducees to the definition of deism as it is offered by Google, they are practically identical in principle. So deists are really Sadducees, or more correctly, Jews. If your favorite white nationalist tells you that he's a deist, he's a Jew between the years. I have also been challenged on the concept of an anthropomorphic God ruling over men made in his image. First, in the wisdom of Solomon, we see that the image of God is his own eternity, and that the Adamic man was made in that image, as well as in his likeness. Secondly, we see that Yahweh God did not start out as a mere anthropomorphic image, but rather he designed man with the thought of ruling over his own creation as a man, Jesus Christ, who was made from the foundation of the world. Of course, the Jews have always denied that, and by arguing against that idea, my trolls reveal their true nature. They're Jews. If they whine about an anthropomorphic God, well, God took the form of a man, Jesus Christ. There's your anthropomorphic God. If you do not like that, you prove yourself to be a Jew. The opening comments on tonight's program were loosely based on a topic posted at the Christogenia Forum. And now we will 
proceed with Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. This is our fifth installment presenting this epistle. It is subtitled, The Rapture of the Wicked. Presenting the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we discussed the supposed rapture of the saints and discovered that Paul never really described such a rapture at all. Rather, he was poetically depicting some of the events as he perceived that they shall take place at the second advent of the Christ in relation to the resurrection of the dead and the regathering of the people of God. Many denominational Christians, expecting a so-called rapture, expect to be lifted up into the heavens and into the clouds at any given moment which is a childishly ridiculous fantasy. We pointed out that by writing clouds, Paul was very likely only referring to throngs, just as he himself used the word for cloud in Hebrews chapter 12. We also showed that where the King James Version has the words caught up, the literal meaning is more properly carried off. In part, a more practical reading of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 may be, Then we, the living who are remaining at once, shall be carried off in throngs for a meeting. But this is not all. We also elucidated the fact that where Paul spoke of a meeting, quote-unquote, in air, or in the air, He was not talking about the sky or the heavens. Since in the Gospels, wherever the sky is referred to, the Greek word is uranos, or heaven, and not air. We argued that everywhere the phrase birds of the air is mentioned in the New Testament, the word is uranos, which is otherwise usually translated as heaven in the King James Version. If the uranos is the abode of the birds, then by saying air, Paul could not have been referring to the sky. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the word for air is a very similar Greek word, air, not uranos. So Paul, using it, did not intend to refer to the abode of the birds. Rather, he was referring to the physical world as opposed to the spiritual world, using the word just as he had used it in a reference to Satan, the prince of this world, as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, because Satan has no power in heaven. Discrediting the supposed rapture of the saints, we hope to have fully demonstrated that the proponents of such a theory not only misinterpret Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but they also take out of context many passages from the early Christian writers, namely Irenaeus, Cyprian, and Pseudo-Ephraim and they twist them into pretzels in order to buttress their position. But we are confident that once we examine fuller passages of those writers, we prove beyond doubt the purposeful dishonesty of the rapture proponents 
who cite such works to support their claims. There can be no rapture of the saints, as the denominational Christians describe it, for many scriptural reasons, some of them which we shall discuss here this evening. For now, it shall suffice to say that Christians are told by Christ himself to pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And why should that be our prayer if we should all expect to be taken up into heaven before the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth? For the same thing in Acts chapter 1, the apostles themselves were told that this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, thusly shall he come in the manner which you have beheld him going into the heaven. So there is no rapture of the saints, but there will be a rapture, if we want to call it that. The rapture which Christians are really promised is a rapture of the wicked, and this too is mentioned in many places in scripture. Here we shall discuss that at length, as Paul makes mention here in this chapter of the imminent destruction of the enemies of Yahweh our God. This is the gathering of the tares, which is what Yahshua Christ truly describes in Matthew chapter 24. The rapture enthusiasts like to use that verse where it says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. However, Yahshua Christ certainly did not, by saying that, he certainly did not contradict his own words in Matthew chapter 13, where he spoke of the wheat and the tares, and he said, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the tares are taken away before the wheat is gathered, and knowing this, the children of God should want to be left behind. As Christ himself had said in John chapter 17, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from evil. Here, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is still discussing the coming of the prince, which he began to describe in the last verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul did not change the topic, and the chapter division was not a component of Paul's original text. The chapters were not divided by men until the 16th century. At the end of chapter 4, Paul spoke of Yahshua's relationship with his people, as he would gather both the living and the dead from among them upon his return. And then, here in chapter 5, Paul begins to speak concerning the timing of that event, and then some of the other things which must also happen along with that same event. 
the artificial chapter division made by a medieval monk does not change the context of Paul's words. The beginning of chapter 5 is merely a continuation of what Paul was discussing at the end of chapter 4. With this, we shall commence with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul will immediately take us back to Acts chapter 1, or to the words of Christ in the Gospel, promising his own return. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to be written to you, for you yourselves know thoroughly that the day of the prince comes as a thief in a night. Concerning that phrase, times and seasons, the words are chronos and kairos, and they are synonyms. They are alike in virtually all of their meanings. The exact same words appear in Acts chapter 1, where Luke had written of the final gathering and meeting of the apostles, where the risen Christ on the Mount of Olives had said to them, So then, I'm sorry, Luke records that he said to them when they were gathered, after they asked him, Prince, then at this time, shall you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not yours to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. So Paul is repeating exactly what he had heard from the other apostles in reference to the second advent of Christ. But making these statements here, as we had speculated when examining earlier passages of this epistle, Paul seems to have been answering an inquiry which had been made by the Thessalonians themselves. Here, here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1, in relation to the times and the seasons, Paul makes a further reference to the day of the prince, or as it's commonly translated, the day of the Lord, a phrase which is not found in the Gospels but which is mentioned frequently in the Old Testament prophets. However, in the Gospels, Christ did frequently mention the coming of the Son of Man. Mentioning the day of the Lord here, Paul ties the promised return of Yahshua Christ directly to the promised day of the Lord, often referred to in the Old Testament prophets, as he also had at least once in each of his epistles to the Corinthians. Paul mentioned the day of the Lord once in each of those epistles. In Acts chapter 2, it is recorded that the apostle Peter also made this connection, where he quotes from the prophet Joel, and we read concerning the day of Pentecost. And it shall be in the day's future, says Yahweh, I will pour out from my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your youths shall see visions, and your elders shall dream dreams. And then upon my men servants and upon my maid servants, in those days I will pour out from my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I'll show you, I shall make wonders in the heaven above, and signs upon the earth below, blood and fire, and a vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming great day and appearance of Yahweh. And it shall be that all who shall be called by the name of Yahweh shall be preserved. So Peter connected that great and dreadful day of the Lord with the appearance of Christ on earth. Now, of course, at the first Christian Pentecost, they only received a deposit of that spirit. We await it once again. Likewise, the Apostle Peter described the same day of the Lord further in his second epistle, in a rather in rather poetic terms where he had written, But you must not forget this one thing, beloved, that one day with the Prince, or the Lord, is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Prince does not delay the promise, as some regard delay, but has forbearance for us, not wishing for any to be destroyed, but that all should have space for repentance. But the day of the Prince shall come as a thief, at which the heavens shall pass away with a rushing noise, and the elements shall dissolve with burning heat, and the earth and the works in it shall be discovered. Denominational Christians frequently fail to connect this day of the Lord mentioned in the epistles of Peter and Paul with the many references to the day of the Lord found in the Old Testament prophets and to Paul's words at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But they are certainly all referring to one and the same broad event wherever it is prophesied. As Paul mentions the thief in the night analogy in connection to this day of the Lord, Christ spoke of his return in that same manner as well, in Matthew chapter 24. At the beginning of that chapter, we read that upon exiting the temple, and with the apostles having mentioned the wonderful buildings of the temple complex, Christ promised that they would all be destroyed. So in response, the apostles asked him three questions which do not necessarily relate to coinciding events. Matthew records their inquiry in this manner. Then, with his sitting upon the Mount of Olives, the students came forth to him by themselves, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? That's in reference to when the temple will be destroyed and not one stone is found atop another. And what is the sign of your coming? And of the consummation of the age. And the apostles may have connected those events, but that is not necessarily so in the mind of Christ. Christ is recorded as having given one long answer, but the records do not divide his answer. So it is not clear which part of the answer relates to each of the particular questions. However, the part where Christ had mentioned the thief in the night, which Paul also mentions speaking of the return of Christ here, is clearly in response to the question where the apostles had asked him, What is the sign of your coming? In that regard, Christ then said, But concerning that day and hour, 
no one knows, not the angels of the heavens or the sun, except the Father only. For just as the days of Noah, thusly shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For as they were in those days, before the deluge, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the vessel, and they did not know until the deluge had come, and all were taken away, thusly shall be the coming of the Son of Man. At that time, two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and one left alone. Two shall be grinding grain at the mill, one shall be taken, and one left alone. Therefore you must be alert because you do not know in what day your prince comes. But know this, that if the master of the house knew in which hour of the night the thief comes, he would have been alert and would not have allowed his house to be dug through. For this reason, you also must be ready, because you cannot determine at which hour the Son of Man comes. The denominational Christians like to cite those verses in Matthew 24 to support their rapture theory. And while those verses do describe a sort of rapture, it is not the rapture which they suppose. As we have already said, Christians must hope to be left behind. With the terms which he uses here in this passage of 1 Thessalonians, Paul himself is connecting several things which are described at various points elsewhere in the New Testament, and Paul is describing them as if they would all happen in conjunction with one another. These are, one, the return of Christ and the gathering of his people, both the living and the dead, as he described it at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And two, the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44, where he spoke of his return as a thief in the night, and where certain people would suddenly be removed. And three, the statement in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where the times and seasons are mentioned in connection to his return, which is also when the kingdom shall be restored to Israel. Christ himself making that connection by answering the apostles' question in the manner which he had. And four, the description of the violent upheaval in relation to the day of the Lord, mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3, which the apostle also referred to as he is recorded as having cited Joel in Acts chapter 2, and which is frequently described in the prophets. This we see in the following verse of Paul's epistle in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 3. So right here, Paul himself connects all these ideas as if they are all going to coincide with one another. Once one sees these connections which Paul makes here, one might start to understand the nature of the rapture, which those verses in Matthew chapter 24 actually do describe. 
For that very reason, Paul continues here, and he says, when they say, peace and security, then suddenly, destruction comes upon them, even as a labor pang to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. And this language is very important in understanding certain things in the gospel because this language represents the way Paul understood those things. Just before speaking of the days of Noah, in the passage from Matthew chapter 24, which we have already cited, Christ also said from verse 32, now learn from the parable of the fig tree, when already its branches should be tender, and it would produce leaves. You know that summer is near. Thusly also you, when you should see all these things, know that it is near by the doors. Truly I say to you, that by no means should this race escape, until all these things should happen. The heaven. And the earth shall pass, but my word shall by no means pass. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the messengers of the heavens, nor the Son, except the Father only. So here we know that Christ and Paul are once again speaking of the same day and hour, prophetic day and hour, the race which shall not escape in Matthew 24:34, where Christ said, by no means should this race escape, must be the same people of which Paul speaks here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, where he says, when they say, peace and security, then suddenly destruction comes upon them, even as a labor pang to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. Paul must be speaking of the enemies of Christ here, and not of the people of Christ, as he already wrote just a few verses ago in relation to the people of Christ and their resurrection and gathering in the closing verses of chapter 4, where he concluded that in that manner always with the prince we shall be. Therefore, here in this passage, we see support for our understanding of the words of Christ, where he said in Matthew twenty-four thirty-four that by no means should this race escape until all these things should happen. Just as we do, it is clear that Paul had also interpreted those words to refer to the return of Christ and not to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., in Matthew chapter 24, we see two things which are foretold of the day of the coming of the Son of Man, or the day of the Lord. First, that a particular race will not escape until all these things come to pass, where Christ was referring to his opposition in Jerusalem. Second, we read that, as it was in the days of Noah, sudden destruction would come, and that, at that time, Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and one left alone. Two shall be grinding grain at the mill, one shall be taken, and one left alone. 
Therefore, you must be alert. Because you do not know in what day your prince comes. Later, in this chapter of 1 Thessalonians, in verse 9, Paul tells his Christian readers that Yahweh has not ordained us for wrath, but for the acquisition of preservation through our Prince Yahshua Christ. Of course, we have often mentioned the purpose of the gospel given in Luke chapter 1. Blessed is Yahweh the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, which is given to us, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their errors or sins. And in that context, we see that the salvation which is in Christ must be exclusive to the descendants of the ancient children of Israel. So if preservation is ordained for the children of Israel, we must determine whom it is who is ordained for wrath, where Paul says that we are not ordained for wrath like the others. And for that, we must turn to the Old Testament prophecies, as even Luke, Luke advised us, or Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, advised us, as Luke had recorded it. We must turn to those Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord in order to understand who it is that is ordained for wrath. Therefore, there is one such prophecy of the day of the Lord in Obadiah, which is still awaiting fulfillment. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, or nations. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph of flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them, and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. It can be established in Scripture that the reference to Yahweh's holy mountain, that all those nations, all those heathen, are drinking upon, the reference to Yahweh's holy mountain is a reference to the children of Israel themselves. It's certainly not a reference to some hill in that Middle Eastern hellhole. For instance, long after the Israelites had been taken captive to Assyria, where Ezekiel was told in chapter 36 of his prophecy to prophecy unto the mountains of Israel, 
The admonition was an allegory for the prophet to speak to the people of Israel. How do we know? Because they had already been taken out of Israel. Because Ezekiel was with the captives, off in the land of Assyria, which he admits in the opening chapters of his prophecy. Ezekiel was not in Israel. He was with the captivity. Likewise, in Daniel chapter 2, there was prophesied a kingdom which would be eternal, and which was from a a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Another reference to the people of Israel. So, for instance, we read in Psalm 74, where the reference to Zion was also a reference to the people of Israel. Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Yahweh dwells among his people. That psalm, written by Asaph, was written in the Babylonian captivity. And Zion is once again an allegory for the children of Israel, not a reference to the actual mountain in Palestine. It is the people of Israel who are the holy mountain of Yahweh their God. Likewise it says in Psalm 102, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise, and have mercy upon Zion. For the time to favor her, yeah, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. The mountain, the stones, the dust are all references to the people of Israel. The holy mountain of Obadiah is a reference to the people, not to the hill in Palestine. Understanding that Yahweh's holy mountain is the people of Israel, we read in Obadiah 15 that for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, As thou hast done, it shall be done under thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. So when two men are standing in the field, Or when two women are grinding at the mill, and one of them disappears, who is it that's disappearing? It surely is not the children of Israel. So this is a reference to all the non-Israelite nations, the heathen, who are feeding themselves at the expense of the children of Israel at the time of the day of the Lord, by drinking upon his holy mountain. Then, The two verses which follow foretell the destruction of Esau, and the enemies of Christ in Judea were primarily of the house of Esau, something which is proven by comparing the words of Christ in Luke 11, 
in John 8, in Revelation 2, 9, in Revelation 3, verse 9, and the words of Paul in Romans 9, to the history of intertestamental Judea supplied by Flavius Josephus in Antiquities Book 13. And there are other secular histories which corroborate Josephus. We have already done this here at length in our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Romans. It is simply not expedient to do it here again. So, at the day of the Lord, all of the heathens, or nations, feeding off of Yahweh's holy mountain Israel, shall be as though they had not been. And the Edomite Jews will also be eliminated, left for stubble. And it is that time of which Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. When, in association with his talk about the return of Christ, just a few verses before this at the end of chapter 4, he says, When they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction comes upon them, even as a labor pang to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. This may be likened to the admonition of Christ, which we have already seen in Matthew chapter 24, now learned from the parable of the fig tree, when already its branches should be tender, and it would produce leaves, you know that summer is near. Thus we also you, when you should see all these things, know that it is near by the doors. Truly I say to you, that by no means should this race escape until all these things should happen. The fig tree is the one which Christ had cursed in Matthew chapter 21. And when he saw a fig tree in a way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. The fig tree at the return of Christ produces leaves, but there is no mention of fruit. Then, the reference to all the trees in that same passage is ostensibly an allegory for all the heathen, or all the nations, in Obadiah 15. When they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction comes upon them, even as a labor pang to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. Ostensibly, once the enemies of Christ believe that they no longer have formidable opposition from the people of God, destruction will indeed come upon them. This opinion is substantiated in Isaiah chapter 26, making a reference to the pangs of childbirth, Paul entices us to look more closely at Scripture concerning the promised day of the Lord and the deliverance of Israel, where we find a similar reference in Isaiah the prophet. The children of Israel and Judah had already been warned by the prophet of their impending destruction and captivity. But in Isaiah 26, we see a prophecy of deliverance and salvation where the chapter begins by saying, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah, which is not necessarily in Palestine. It is more like the land where Judah dwells.
walls. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Then, a little later in Isaiah, where we may clearly see that this is indeed a reference to post-captivity Israel in the last days. The prophet says, Thou, the prophet says, putting the words into the mouth of the children of Israel, Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Yahweh, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. So this is a prophecy that the dispersed of Israel would pray to God in their future time of trouble. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain, and cries out in her pangs, So have we been in thy sight, O Yahweh. In other words, in the last days, the children of Israel are greatly oppressed with pain compared to a woman in travail. And they say, We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. And we have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Which is a promise that Yahweh made to Israel if they were obedient. Man cannot save himself and requires the intervention of his God. This also corresponds to the similar sins of the ancient kingdom where it says in Hosea chapter 8, For they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so, be it yield. The stranger shall swallow it up. So it says here that the children of Israel have no profit in their sowing. Where Isaiah says, Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen, meaning that Israel is being oppressed by them. Hosea says of what Israel had sowed, that the stranger shall swallow it up, which also corresponds to what Obadiah described as the heathens drinking upon Yahweh's holy mountain. What we have today is the natural result of our past sins. Isaiah continues, this is, Yahweh speaking to the children of Israel now. It's a dialogue, even though the King James Version and most others don't display these dialogues very well. Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. This is Yahweh speaking to the children of Israel. Christ arose, and Paul said that as Christ arose, we shall all arise. Yahweh is saying, he's calling the body of Christ, my dead body. Thy, your dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. 
Yahweh is Yahshua Christ. There it is in Isaiah. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead, a reference to the resurrection of Israel at the second advent of Christ. Here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is merely <laughs> summarizing. He is summarizing what Isaiah had described long before him. Come, my people, verse 20, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. This is similar to what happened in Egypt at the Passover. The children of Israel shall somehow be sheltered from the wrath of God. As Paul says here, that Yahweh has not ordained us for wrath. Then in verse 21, For behold, Yahweh comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. As Obadiah says, they shall be as though they had never been. This is, I'm sorry, I was drinking. This is the rapture of the wicked, the Edomite Jews, and all of the other races whom the Jews have brought in to oppress the children of Israel shall be destroyed. But in the end, as it is described, here in Isaiah, the children of Israel are punished until they repent of their sins, until they acknowledge their errors, until they give up and say, hey, we've been sowing and we have nothing to show for it. We have no profit in our sowing. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth because man cannot save himself. The Adamic man cannot save himself. That's the story. That's the requirement given the way the repentance of Israel is described in Isaiah chapter 26. And that is how he obtained salvation, by turning back to his God. Yahweh God had also foretold of these things through Jeremiah the prophet in a very different way where he said in Jeremiah chapter 30 for I am with thee saith Yahweh to save thee though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee yet will I not make a full end of thee but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And there's a similar statement in Jeremiah chapter 46. So Isaiah chapter 26 corroborates those statements from Jeremiah. The prophetic glue, though, that holds these assertions together and also relates them to what is happening in the world today is found in several places but especially in the Revelation, in chapters 12 and 20. First, there is Revelation chapter 12, 
where it speaks of the dragon, which is also described as the serpent, the devil, and as Satan and his angels who were cast out of heaven, and which is identified with the same dragon who had attempted to kill the Christ child, something that can only describe Herod, the Edomite Jew. There it says, And when the dragon saw that he had been cast down into the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the man-child. And they had given to the woman the two wings of a great eagle, in order that she may fly into the desert into her place, where she is nourished there for a time and times and half of a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent had cast from his mouth water as a river after the woman, in order that he may have carried her off by the river. And the earth assisted the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and gulped down the river which the dragon had cast from his mouth. And the dragon was angered by the woman, and went to make war with those remaining of her offspring, who keep the commandments of Yahweh, and have the testimony of Yahshua. This last part describes where we have been in history these past few hundred years, as the Edomite Jew has been making war against Christendom. Then, in Revelation chapter 20, we see another prophecy. And when a thousand years are completed, the adversary, or Satan, shall be released from his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is as the sand of the sea. These are all the heathen of Obadiah verses 15 and 16. And they had gone up upon the breadth of the earth, and encircled the camp of the saints, and the beloved city. And fire descended from out of heaven, and devoured them. And the false accuser, or devil, who deceived them, is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where are also the beast and the false prophet. And they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. Along these same lines... The prophecy which we had read from Isaiah chapter 26 is continued in Isaiah chapter 27, where it says of the day of the Lord, In that day the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. And this describes the ancient Kenites, Rephaim, Edomite Jews, and others, all of whom are still with us as bastards and as Jews. In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, Yahweh, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest anyone hurt it. I will keep it day and night. Fury is not in me. Who would set? briars and thorns against me in battle. And of course, briars and thorns describes the ancient Canaanite bastards, including the Arabs of today. I would go through them. I would burn them together, or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom in bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. 
once the prophecy of Obadiah is fulfilled, there will be no obstacle to Israel filling the face of the world with fruit. Because there just won't be any niggers, Jews, chinks, Arabs, spicks, or any other bastards. But ostensibly, the fire come down from heaven of Isaiah is described differently in Obadiah where it says that the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, that Christ shall fulfill his judgment through his people is evident elsewhere, both in Micah and in the Revelation. For instance, in Micah chapter 4, where it also very clearly prophecies of post-captivity Israel. Now also many nations are gathered against thee, that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion, the holy mountain of Obadiah. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his wicked counsel. I'm sorry, neither understand they his counsel. I'm reading two lines at once. For he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor the removal of the tares. That is the rapture of the wicked. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. That's the end game for prophecy. Nobody's going back to the countries they came from. The children of Israel shall populate the face of the world with fruit. And the substance of all these other so-called nations, peoples, tribes will be dedicated, will be consecrated to Yahweh. Likewise, we see a similar prophecy in Isaiah chapter 41. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, as though they had not been. And they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and shall not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught, as Obadiah says, they shall be as though they had never been. For I, Yahweh thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small. 
and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and thou shalt rejoice in Yahweh, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah, Micah, Obadiah, Jeremiah. The participation of the people of Christ in this judgment is also spoken of in the Revelation at the fall of Mystery Babylon. And it says, And I heard another voice from out of heaven saying, You come out from her, my people, that you should not partake in her errors, and that you would not receive from of her wounds, because her errors have built up as far as heaven, and Yahweh has called to mind her injustices. You return to her, as she had also rendered, and you double twice the things according to her works. In the cup which she had mixed, you mixed double for her. And as much as she has magnified herself and lived wantonly, so much you give torment and grief to her. Because she said in her heart, that I sit a queen, and I am not a widow, and I have not seen grief. For this reason, in one day shall her plagues come, death and grief and famine. She shall be burned with fire, because mighty is Prince Yahweh who judges her. And the very next vision in the Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is, like Obadiah, the destruction of all of the enemies of Christ in a great slaughter. That's the rapture of the wicked. That's the only rapture we can expect. As we had noticed from the writings of the early Christian bishops, Irenaeus and Cyprian, when we were discrediting the denominational Christian claims concerning the rapture, these early writers believed that the saints would indeed face a great battle here on earth at the end of the time of the Antichrist. They did not... They did not understand exactly when this would occur, which is in keeping with Scripture, and they imagined that the Antichrist was an individual rather than a race or a collection of individuals. However, we understand that the Antichrist is a collection of individuals who are born that way. And therefore, in that respect, they are a race, as the Apostle John also describes in his epistles. In 1 John chapter 4 and 2 John chapter 1, he explains that the Antichrists are those who deny Jesus as the Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, Little children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born, from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us, but so that they would be made manifest that they are all not from of us. In that last verse, the Apostle identifies the Antichrist as the Edomite Jew, where he says, They came out from us, but they were not from of us, meaning that they were not actually Israelites, as Paul of Tarsus also identifies them as Edomites in Romans chapter 9, the vessels of destruction. These are the Jews of today, whom Yahweh had driven into all nations to be a taunt, 
and a proverb, a curse, and a reproach, as it says in Jeremiah. Nevertheless, Irenaeus had said in his Against Heresies, in Book 5, Chapter 29, describing the poor condition of the world under the rule of the Antichrist, There shall be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be, for this is the last contest of the righteous, in which, when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. On the same subject, he then added, in chapter 30 of the same book, But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months, and sit in the temple at Jerusalem, and then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom, that is, the rest, the hallowed seventh day. Paul speaks of that rest, that hallowed seventh day, of it being in the future in the epistle to the Hebrews, and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance in which kingdom the Lord declared that many coming from the east and from the west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Likewise, Cyprian, in his epistle 55 to the people of Thebaris, an exhortation to martyrdom, describes the battle against the Antichrist in the last days which he understood that Christians had to face, and which he also believed was imminent. For you ought to know, and to believe, and to hold it for certain, that the day of affliction has begun to hang over our heads, and the end of the world, and the time of Antichrist, to draw near, so that we must all stand prepared for the battle, nor consider anything but the glory of the eternal life, and the crown of the confession of the Lord, and not regard those things which are coming as being such as those which have passed away. A severer and fiercer fight is now threatening, for which the soldiers of Christ ought to prepare themselves with uncorrupted faith and robust courage, considering that they drink the cup of Christ's blood daily, for the reason that they themselves also may be able to shed their blood for Christ. So while we do not agree with everything which the early Christian writers had taught, since they looked to an individual Antichrist as a opposed to the collective Antichrist described by the Apostle John. We do see that they understood that the last great battle here on earth would be fought by the people of Christ, as we have seen is indeed promised in Obadiah 18, in Micah chapter 4, in Isaiah chapter 41, in Isaiah chapter 27, and in Revelation chapter 18. Paul likewise advised the Corinthians in chapter 10 of his second epistle to them, to be sober-minded, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul of Tarsus certainly would have agreed. And while he does not explicitly state such a thing here, 
He does warn the Thessalonians to be sober-minded and prepared over these next several verses. And you may not think we're going to get through of, through with all of 1 Thessalonians tonight, but we certainly are. But you, brethren, verse 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, <clears throat> But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should surprise you as thieves. All of you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. John explains in chapter 1 of his first epistle what it is that Paul makes reference to here. And this is the message which we have heard from him and we announce to you, that Yahweh is light and there is not any darkness in him. If we should say that we have fellowship with him and we would walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we would walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Yahshua cleanses us from all sin. And in verse 6 Paul says, So then, we should not sleep as the rest. Rather, we should be alert, and we should be sober. For those falling asleep, by night they fall asleep, and those getting drunk, by night they get drunk. And here again, Paul is referring to what Christ himself had said in the Gospel. From Luke chapter 21, where Christ had again spoken to his apostles in reference to his opposition in Judea. Then he spoke a parable to them. See the fig tree and all the trees, when already they have cast forth. Seeing it for yourselves, you know that already the harvest is near. Thusly also you. When you should see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of Yahweh is near. Truly I say to you that by no means should this race escape until all things come to be. The heaven and the earth shall pass away, but these words of mine shall by no means pass away. Now watch yourselves, that at no time should your hearts be weighed down with hangovers and drunkenness and the cares of life. And suddenly that day should come upon you like a snare, for it shall come upon all those sitting upon the face of all the earth. As it says in Revelation 18, verse 4, in part, you come out from her, my people, that you should not partake in her errors, and that you would not receive from of her wounds. So when the children of Israel hear the call, they must be alert to understand it. But failing, they will suffer along with the others as Christ, as Christ had warned here. And suddenly, that day should come upon you like a snare. Therefore, Paul continues, But we, being of day, should be sober, putting on a breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, an expectation of deliverance or salvation. While Christian faith and love should be expressed in action, in the works which Christians do for the benefit of their brethren and their Christian communities, here Paul once again reminds us, albeit indirectly, of how Christians should attain to the obedience that Yahweh God requires, so that they may avenge all disobedience, as he had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
He does this by using language that evokes the words of Isaiah the prophet, once again, found in Isaiah chapter 59, which are a messianic prophecy and which are related to Paul's subject here. Reading them, once again we must realize just how evil the world will be before Christians finally turn to their God and cry out for deliverance. And Isaiah said, Yeah, truth faileth, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Even today's Christians who wish to do well and live righteously, make themselves a prey. They make themselves legal targets of the enemies of our God. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. The theme here is that no man can save us from this predicament, so God himself must do it. For he put on a righteousness, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly will he repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will pay recompense. Christians do indeed have an expectation of deliverance by their God, and if they did not, deliverance would be impossible. In that manner, Paul continues, because Yahweh has not ordained us for wrath, but for the acquisition of preservation through our Prince, Yahshua Christ, who died on behalf of us, that whether we would be alert or we would sleep, together with him we would live. And perhaps, perhaps, at least on the surface, awake may have been a better rendering than alert here. Whether we should be awake or we would sleep, together with him we would live. Depending on one's point of view and level of awareness in reference to what Paul is saying, the word bears either meaning. If we read the word Gregoruo, Gregoruo, it's also Gregorio, as alert, Gregorio is easier to pronounce, that's for sure. If we read the word as alert, we may perceive that Paul is speaking of all those of Israel who are living, and that those sleeping are the ones caught up in the cares of the world, or weighed down with drunkenness, as Christ had warned in Luke chapter 21, which we have just cited. However, if we read the word as awake, we may perceive that he is speaking of those who have died, where he mentions those who sleep. Where he had spoken of their resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, either reading and either understanding is valid. And indeed, we have another assurance in Scripture that all Israel shall be saved. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11, 
on which account you encourage one another, and you build up one another, even just as you do. And here Paul commended the Christians at Thessalonica for engaging in the building of Christian community, which is the edification in support and encouragement of one's Christian brethren. Paul explained that Christ died on behalf of us as a reminder that Christians, in turn, should also live on behalf of their brethren. Self-sacrifice for the benefit of one's kindred and community is a Christian ideal. Verse 12, Now we ask you, brethren, to know those who are laboring among you, and being set before you in authority and admonishing you, and to esteem them with love beyond excess on account of their work. Live peaceably among yourselves. And some ancient manuscripts have lived peaceably among them. If the alternate reading is accepted, ostensibly the phrase would refer to those who are laboring among you and being set before you in authority and admonishing you. And therefore the effect would be the same since such people should indeed come from one's own community. But we exhort you, brethren, admonish the undisciplined, encourage those of little spirit, put up with those who are weak, be patient towards all. And Paul is not saying, as the King James Version has it, to support those who are weak. In fact, in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, he said that if anyone would not work, neither should he eat. Rather, the Greek word, Ant Ekomahi, Strong's number 472, means to hold against, to hold out against, to withstand, or to endure, according to Liddell and Scott. So by the week here, Paul is referring to those same people that he had described in Romans chapter 14, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For instance, where he said, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. And then, But when you sin, it's, but when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, then you sin against Christ. So here, Paul admonishes the Thessalonians to endure, or as we have it, to put up with, the weak who are among them. In his analogy of the parts of the body of Christ, Paul spoke of the weak, the undisciplined, those of little spirit, the lesser men and women among us. And he concluded, and those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, for our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So here he continues to further admonish in that same manner. Watch that one does not render evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue good both towards one another and towards all. Always rejoice. Of course, Paul is speaking of Christian deportment towards one's fellow Christians. A signal example is in Leviticus chapter 19. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
I am Yahweh. But the first example is in a rhetorical question attributed to Cain, which represents a test that Cain himself had failed, where he asked, Am I my brother's keeper? And of course, if a man is truly your brother, you have an obligation to be his keeper. Paul continues, Pray incessantly. In everything be thankful, for this is the will of Yahweh in Christ Yahshua for you. The Christian should learn to fuse his prayer and his thought. In that manner, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, one may indeed bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Christ himself said to his apostles in the hour of darkness, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Writing much later than he is here, Paul had given the Ephesians similar admonitions. In chapter 5 of that epistle, where he told them, So then, watch precisely how you walk, not as the stupid or foolish, but as the wise, buying the time, because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, rather understand what is the will of the prince, and do not be intoxicated with wine, in which there is abandonment, rather you be filled with the spirit, talking to yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Prince, at all times being thankful for all things in the name of our Prince Yahshua Christ, to Yahweh, even the Father. Subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. And here Paul says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise expounding of Scripture, but scrutinize all things. Hold fast that which is right. The Greek word spenumi is literally quench here, where the sense surely would allow such words as inhibit or suppress. Do not inhibit the spirit. Do not despise expounding of Scripture. Do not suppress it. Paul used the word again in Ephesians chapter 6 in reference to quenching the fiery darts of the wicked. The Greek word prophetia is a noun, and here it is the expounding of scripture, but it is usually and literally prophecy. Prophecy can mean one of three things in the New Testament. The revelation of things not normally known, which we see in John chapter 4 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at verse 25. Or it could mean the interpreting of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, as the Greeks understood the word to mean the gift of interpreting the will of the gods. And lastly, it could mean the revelation of the, the I'm sorry, the relation of the word of God foretelling future events as the Old Testament prophets had done. As far as quenching the spirit, there is a story in Numbers chapter 26 which is exemplary of Paul's admonitions here. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them into the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, 
and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and I will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And Moses went out, and told the people the words of Yahweh, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And Yahweh came down in a cloud, and spoke unto him, and took of the spirit that was upon him, and gave it under the seventy elders. And it came to pass, that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. And the spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but did not go to the tabernacle, but went not out unto the tabernacle. And they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man, and told Moses, and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, or that all Yahweh's people were prophets, and that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. So Joshua wanted to quench the spirit, and Moses forbid it. So while Christians must not repress the gifts of the spirit, which are in their fellows, they must nevertheless scrutinize all things. The yardstick for that scrutiny for example, is found in Acts chapter 17, and the response to the gospel by the Berians, who received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And Paul says in verse 22, as a further admonishment, abstain from every sort of wickedness. We read in Psalm 28, Draw me not away from the wicked, and with the workers of iniquity, which speak peace to their neighbors, but mischief is in their hearts. Therefore the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 57, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. However, abstaining from wickedness, the children of Israel have an assurance of peace. As the gospel itself announces, honor to Yahweh in heights and peace upon the earth among approved men. So Paul also encourages, Now Yahweh, now may Yahweh of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your perfect spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Prince Yahshua Christ. And this week we amended the word order slightly at the beginning of this verse. The inference is that God himself is a God of peace. That is true once it is understood that peace requires the observance of his law. The true peacekeepers are those who keep his law, and the true peacemakers are those who exhort men to keep his law.
As Christ had said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And as it says in the Proverbs, He that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men, but he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. Paul informs Christians how to remain blameless until the day of the Lord in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the society upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. And in verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5, He calling you is trustworthy, who will also produce. Brethren, you also pray for us. And as we hope to have exhibited in our first segment of this presentation of 1 Thessalonians, those who are called are called because they are of the children of the ancient Israelites whom Yahweh God had promised to call. If Yahweh is indeed trustworthy, then the people who are called in Christ are the same people he promised to call in the Old Testament. Otherwise, he is not trustworthy. But identity Christians know that God is true. And Paul closes in verse 26. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the prince. The letter is to be read to all the brethren. And this final verse indicates that there may have been some division among the Thessalonians concerning these things, which Paul had not previously mentioned, and which perhaps he hoped to rectify by his answers here. That's the only way we could imagine that he wanted to make sure that all the brethren hear the letter. The favor of our Prince Yahshua Christ is with you. And, of course, some manuscripts add the word Amen to the end. This concludes our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. Praise Yahweh, for there will indeed be a rapture of the wicked. Tomorrow night, we will broadcast a pre-recorded interview with Donald Fox, 9-11 and the awakening to Jewish treachery. Thank you for listening, and good night.